along to one of the Niall Boylan podcast specials. If you're watching on the website, thank you very much indeed for supporting us. If you're watching on Twitter or Facebook, well, thank you as well for supporting us there too. We really appreciate all the support that you give us. It's the only way that we can survive, like many other media enterprises around Ireland. One such enterprise, by the way, is Grip Media, who have been in the news quite a lot lately uh, for many different reasons. Uh, because of the fact, I suppose, they give you news that you're probably not going to get anywhere else. Or they certainly give you a side of the news that you won't hear anywhere else. Because as we know, there was research only in the paper today that suggested over 67% of Irish journalists lean to the left. Only something like 23% actually admitted that they lean to the right and the rest of them don't even know where they're at. So realistically, you're not going to get the stories about climate change, about immigration, about anything at all. You're only going to get one singular echo chamber view unless, of course, you're looking or reading Grip Media or the like. So to talk to me a little bit more about it is the editor and journalist in Grip Media, John McGurk, and he joins me. John, good afternoon to you. Welcome along to the show. Great to be with you, Niall. How are you? Good. John, just a little bit before we kind of get into touch on some of the subjects that I suppose Grip Media are probably more popular for cover, are famous for covering at the moment. Your role in Grip Media, I mean, you started out, you kind of dipped your toe into the political waters going back about 10 or 15 years ago with Fine Gael, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, well, as a student. I as was, a student. Uh, I was involved, I was involved in, in, in student politics and I, I suppose I was, I was 18 or 19, Niall, I was, or younger than that even. I got interested in politics. My local TD was a Fianna Fáil guy by the name of Rory O'Hanlon who had family connections to, to, to you know, he was a friend of, his sister actually was a friend of our family. So he was kind of a natural sort of person to, to get involved in politics with. And then you're canvassing for Fianna Fáil TD, you get involved in Ogre Fianna Fáil and, and all the rest of that. And there's a lot made about the fact that I was then later in Fine Gael, but it was actually a very similar reason in that one of my, I, I would say a dear friend of mine is the former Fine Gael minister, Lucinda Creighton. Oh, okay. Was somebody who I, who who I, I thought was, was wonderful, by the way. I, I know she left politics because of the abortion referendum at the time, mm. or the, the the free vote. Well, it wasn't actually. It turned out not to be a free vote. She lost the whip uh, when she was with Andy Kenny, and then she had her own party, Renewa. I remember the night I had great faith in her because she had some wonderful ideas about changing the tax system and all sorts of things, and the, and the famous debate that she had um, with it was the election debate on her. She failed miserably, which I was so disappointed with because I maybe she was just having a bad night. I don't know what it was. And Renewa just didn't work for her. Now she stepped out of politics altogether. Maybe she'll she'll come back again. Oh, I don't know about that. I think she's pretty happy outside of politics. I think politics is a lot harder life than people think it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when you're when you're kind of happy and you've got a family and you're doing the stuff outside it and you've been in there, there aren't that many people who are desperately hungry to go back. But yeah, so I ended up, because uh, I had great faith in her and her abilities, I, I got involved in her campaign. This was years later and mm-hmm. was involved in, in, in helping her get elected. Um, so that is how I ended up being in both Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. It wasn't some kind of ideological commitment. It was in both occasions commitment to people. But then, I suppose, as, as time went on and you kind of get a bit older and you start thinking for yourself, you realise, first of all, having been in both parties, that there's no difference between them ideologically, that the two two sides of the same same coin, quite literally, yeah. when you're in them, you kind of figure that out. And secondly, it you know, as I read more and developed more of my own sort of thinking about you know, where the where the country should go and what the issues were, um, it became increasingly clear to me that there was there was no real party that kind of in Ireland that kind of was accommodating people of a sort of centre right. Yeah, conservatives. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so my my political evolution has been. I've worked on individual campaigns. I mean, people might remember I was involved in the abortion referendum, the Lisbon Treaty referendum, going back years. Mm-hmm. Um, but mainly, mainly, I've confined myself to sort of media work. Like, so I, I was, I was, I was deeply in debt to somebody who I really wouldn't agree with at all on many issues. Who's Vincent Brown, who who really gave me an opportunity <laughs> to 
wonderful man, by the way. To do, to do this. A wonderful man. Um, yeah. Somebody who really gave me an opportunity to 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 share my thoughts with the country on his show on a regular basis mm. and taught me an awful lot as well. So so this has been my focus. And I also think, um, as, as having been both in politics and then doing this, I would say that Politics is 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 important, but in terms of actually making an impact in the country and and generating political debate, very little political debate happens in the Oireachtas. I don't know if you ever noticed that, Niall. But it now most of it happens it, outside, it, of course. Yeah, most of it happens outside, and most of it is. I mean, if you well, want the, the doll politics, is generally just reactionary to what happens yeah. outside the doll. Yeah, if you want to influence policy in this country, you're far better off joining an NGO like mm-hmm. the National Women's Council or or and or any one of the, the ones that we, we all Any one of the ones that we spend six billion a year on, yeah. <laughs> so with Gript so with Gript, which we founded in twenty nineteen with nothing, the objective really was to kind of create first of all a, a media outlet that was yes, we report the news, but we also try and offer opinion perspectives and the and the news from a perspective that maybe people aren't getting. Which so you wouldn't you wouldn't deny the Gript is or has a bias. I mean, look, I admit I have a bias. You know, I, I'm, I lean slightly to the right. I consider myself conservative. GB News has a bias. Talk TV has a bias. Fox has a bias. CNN, of course, uh, has a bias much more to the left. So you wouldn't deny they have a bias. There's a slight bias, no. obviously, to the right. No, but, but I think it's very important to understand what bias means. So bias doesn't mean that we cover up facts if they don't suit our argument. Of course. Bias means we look at the news from a particular perspective. Um, mm. Which is sort of critical of the establishment and the, the the ideas that are currently dominant in Ireland, and say, well, what are the problems here, and what are the problems that aren't being talked about elsewhere? So we do look at the news with a particular, I suppose you could say, a conservative worldview, as in, like, why do what, why do we think from our point of view? that the problems that we have are the problems that we have, rather than from the point of view. I mean, Fintan O'Toole would probably, in the Irish Times, would say we have the problems for entirely different reasons. Mm -hmm. So, for example, he and I both wrote pieces this week that were very critical of the referendums that the government is proposing to hold on March the 8th. And if you read those pieces, you'd be inclined to think that both of us are voting no, but for very different reasons. I don't know whether he is voting no or not, but that was the impression you'd get from his piece. Um, And I think that's, that's what bias means. It means you're looking at the news from a particular perspective through a particular lens. And I think that's fine, um, Niall, so long as people understand that you have that bias and you're upfront about it. I think the issue with the, the survey you mentioned a couple of minutes ago at the start of the programme is that there's an awful lot of journalists in the country who have a bias and don't tell you about it. So you have, I mean, in that survey, I think the figure was 14% considered themselves to be on the harder extreme left, another 50% considered themselves to be on the left, 8% on the right, and the rest are centrists. So, mm-hmm. I mean, there's an overwhelming uh, d- degree. To which well, people are afraid to admit they're on the right because the right is a dirty word now. I mean, we've, we've established that over the last few weeks because government ministers uh, use it on a regular basis to silence people or make people feel guilty about their opinions. So being right-wing uh, nowadays is a dirty word. It's a bad thing. It's a negative thing. It's seen as a negative thing, whereas being left-wing is seen as some sort of wonderful, glorious, virtuous, wonderful thing. It always has been. I mean, that, that is the, 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 the great, even from when I was in college 20 years ago, that was always the great propaganda triumph of the left that was that it was A, 
to be on the left meant you were caring and you were good and, and B, and this is why I think it has such particular appeal to students, it meant that you were intelligent and had thought more about the issues than anybody else. So you're both smart and good. So obviously right, being okay. on the left is, is excellent. Whereas on the right, there's all this sense that we're, we're, the uncare, <laughs> we're the uncaring ones who want to cut welfare and give more money to big companies and, you know, brutalize criminals, as Sideshow Bob said in The Simpsons. So so that, that kind of, but even that is reported through a, a particular bias and paradigm because you don't hear about the failures at the left. You don't, you know, the most the most well-known left-wing regimes in the world today that openly embrace left-wing ideology are like the, the government of Venezuela, where people can't get toilet paper and where people are regularly brutalized on the street. We don't hear much about the legacy of the Soviet Union or what's happening in, in, in China and the lack of freedom people have there. So even that is, is, is reported with a particular bias, as if mm. good intentions were enough. And I think that if you look at Ireland over the last 20 years, what we really have here is a is the tragedy of a country that has been run with good intentions and little else. Is there um, guilt, by uh, the way, is there guilt involved in the way Ireland has been run? So we, we went from being in the 1950s and 60s, certainly when I was a young boy in the 1960s, we went from being ruled with the Catholic iron fist to having very good morals or maybe to the extreme on, on the right. And then that pendulum started to swing. Of course, that really started to swing when a lot of the reports came out about sexual abuse in the Catholic Church and people lost a bit of faith in religion. Um, and it kind of swung, but it didn't stay in the middle. It kind of swung the opposite way. And we wanted to be first to do everything. You know, we wanted to be first with the smoking ban, first to get rid of simple things like plastic bags. Then we were the first to bring in, you know, recognised um, what gender recognition bill. We were the first to bring in uh, recognised marriage and marriage unions between gay men and women. We were the first uh, to bring in such liberal abortion laws in Europe. It, was it this kind of guilt that we got to make up for what we didn't do 60 years ago? Is, is there kind of guilt involved in that? I think there's a huge degree of that. And there's, oh, there's also a sense of, I, I think it's hard to underestimate the degree to which it's fueled by anger at the church as well. In that you, you look at, you, you, I mean, if you look at not necessarily what the leaders of the country are saying, but what some voters would say in relation to things like marriage and abortion, they're, they're, they're as happy about the perceived pain and suffering of um, conservative Catholics in those things being passed as they are for the people who are actually getting married or now getting mm -hmm. abortions. So there's a, there's a sense there's a sense of guilt spitefulness about it. <laughs> spitefulness or vengeance about yeah. it, which is not to say not to say that that's that's not a, that, that doesn't say those policies are bad in of their own right. I, I'd argue that gay marriage is fine and abortion is bad but, for other But that, that comes but down to an opinion. There's a, there's a mindset that if you're right wing, you must be a Christian or a Catholic or something like that or religious it's in the, some it's way. The, it's, the number, it's the number one thing I get. Every, well, I'm not. Every, See, I'm not religious, one, but I'm conservative. Well, it's the same as me, Niall. I, I'm an agnostic. I was baptized Catholic. I don't go to mass. So I'm not particularly mm. religious. I'm not sure whether there's a God or not. And the number one thing I get thrown at me every week is that you're a conservative, God-bothering Catholic. It's just mm. the furthest thing from the truth. And, and it, it's kind of like this perspective that people have that you can only hold particular views if, if you're motivated by some kind of religious thing that's been drilled into you from birth and you, you, you haven't actually thought about stuff. But actually, mm. I think if you if you look at this country and you analyze it rationally and, you, and what's more, you listen to what our politicians used to say. We've had this big debate this week about what far right means on foot of something that Helen McEntee said last week where she said it was people... But she didn't really know what it meant, did she? She, she kind of she, gave, she she gave some bizarre definition of it yeah. uh, when she was, but when Sharon Keoghan asked her, she said firstly she didn't know. Then she kind of said, "Well, anti-government, anti-women, anti a few different things." So, essentially, every opposition party must be far right. So, 
Yeah, and what's more, what, what I find really funny is, is she says it's hard to define it, but those are some examples. I'll give her a definition. If you want a definition of far right in this country, it is effectively somebody who believes in 2023, but her own party leader, Leo Varadkar, believed in 2008. Of course. in 2008, Leo Varadkar was sceptical of immigration. He was pro-life. He was opposed to marriage. Equality. And he said, blame the he government. Was, he said, "He said, blame blame the government if immigration is too high. Don't blame immigrants, but you know we should we should crack down on it." He said all those things. He was skeptical of climate change policy going too far. I mean, our he was sure he was skeptical of, of gay men adopting children. He said that was completely yeah, ruled out in his mind. Of this, yeah, of course, before he came out himself. Yeah, but but even even at that, I mean, his 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 the point is, Leo Varadkar has moved dramatically to the left on every policy issue since two thousand and eight. And if you stay where he was, and he would have called himself a centrist then, you're suddenly now holding what Helen McEntee describes as far right views. So that shows you how rapidly the country has shifted. That you can literally have stayed politically exactly where you were over the last 10, 15 years in this country. And your label has changed. You're some, <laughs> now you're some kind of extremist. Um, and I think a lot of people are increasingly waking up to that point. Because Leo Varadkar in the 2007 election, when he held those views and got elected, was it, got, won a record number of votes for first-time TD. He was, the, the electorate ran him in. And the last election, when he was the actual Taoiseach of the country, he and held all make these it. progressive yeah. views, he very nearly didn't make it. Now, maybe that's not all to do with his views, but I think his views have something to do with it. I think Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil in particular have abandoned a huge swathe of their supporters who don't recognise them anymore. But, which is why but politics has changed, John. Sorry for it, politics in this country. When I was a kid, um, you know, my, my dad was a Fianna Fáil man and the house was a Fianna Fáil man. But I remember my dad explaining politics to me when I was very young and he was telling me like, oh, the Labour Party or the Working man, Man's Party and Fianna Fáil are a bit more conservative and Fianna Gael are not. And then we had the PDs that came along at one stage as well. Um, but there was defined policies for each party. They, were, they represented a defined percentage of the population. Whereas now you've got the three main parties. Let's eliminate the Green Party completely, although they're quite dangerous at the moment with the climate change. But but let's just move them out of the side. Nobody really cares about them too much. The three main parties, you've got Sinn Féin, Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil. They're all exactly the same. Except, of course, if Sinn Féin get in, they just do everything that the other two are doing, but just do it faster. So, well, I mean, they're more or less exactly the same. Yeah, they remind me of, did you ever see in the shop those bottles of Ballygowan water with flavouring in them? Yeah. So the, and, and it's the lightest flavour ever and it's all just water with a slightly different food colouring in it. Yeah. That, that's that's what the three of them are like. I mean, the, the basic content is the same and, and your, your 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 vote is a matter of which flavour you prefer. Um, mm. So, I, I, I mean, I, if you look at Sinn Féin in particular, who have this I, this this sort of image is kind of being, which Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil cultivate of them as being some kind of dangerous radicals who are an incipient threat to the system. I mean, if you, if you look at their policies, it just doesn't back that up. Now, yeah. maybe... Maybe if you want to believe that their policies are only a front for something much more radical they do when they get into power, you're free well, to believe that. Well, well, well they're not doing a good job of that because they're losing a lot yeah. of the popular vote amongst the working class in the city centre particularly, which is the ones they're actually targeting for their votes. They're the ones they rely on for the votes, which is the working class. The last time around the last election, people voted for Sinn Féin, not because they were Sinn Féin, but because they wanted to change. I don't think Sinn Féin are going to get that vote this time around because people, well, people with intelligence will see they're exactly the same. They're just more of the same. Let's get to some of the news stories that you've written about recently because I don't want to keep you here all day. But firstly, it's just come into the news now. Orchie have established that Enoch Burke is going to spend Christmas in jail, most likely, because he refuses to purge his contempt. What do you make of the whole story of Enoch Burke? I think it's been horrendously badly managed by both sides of that dispute. And, and I mean, I, I have to say, I don't think... Enoch Burke is innocent in all of this. I think that he had a very, very good case. Um, mm -hmm. I think the initial injustice that was done to him 
was a, a very considerable injustice. I don't think that any citizen of this republic should be compelled in a workplace or any other setting to say something that they don't believe to be true. Yeah. And I think whatever whatever my personal views might be about you know being polite to people or whatever, I don't think there's any reason that anyone should be compelled on pain of losing their job to call somebody a man who they know or fundamentally believe to be a woman or vice versa. So I think of the initial... The initial dispute, Enoch Burke was 100% in the right. I think he has shone an important light on those issues and people are more aware of them on foot of that. And in that respect, I think he's done the state a service. I don't think, however, that he has done himself a service. I think that if you've got a good case like that and you've got a legitimate dispute, the best thing you can do if you're a citizen is to find a good lawyer and have them prosecute the case for you. And as I said to you off air, um, and I'm going to say it bluntly, if, if going into court and shouting at judges and calling courts corrupt was a legal strategy that was likely to succeed, then every high-paid barrister and solicitor in the country would be doing it, and none of them are. Yeah, I mean, look, you, you've got to give them 10 out of 10 for determination, but unfortunately, yeah. and a lot of people come onto my show on a regular basis and they say, oh, but look at Enoch Burke, he's in jail because he wouldn't call a child a he or a she. I said, no, that's not why he's in jail. He's in jail, of course, as we know, because he won't purge his contempt of court and he wouldn't follow the orders of a court. And you are right that standing outside the school constantly all the time, although we admire him for his determination, is not going to win the case for him. And that's that's not how yeah, we but, deal with things. Can, can I say on a broader point, this this touches on something that kind of bothers me. And I got in trouble uh, a couple of weeks ago, a couple, was it a week, month ago, when there was that, when the doll came back and there was that scuffle outside the doll, I don't know if you remember it. Oh, I got the, in trouble yeah. for... For, for, for writing critically about it. And a lot of people said, oh, I betrayed people who, you know, who were protesting in good faith. One of the things that really bothers me as somebody who's sort of on the, the right side of politics is the degree to which the left tend to fight smarter than the right. Like, we, you know, if Enoch Burke had a really good case um, and a really good opportunity to prosecute that case and, and to, to deliver a win. And instead, uh, in my opinion, I, I don't think he fought that case very well. Similarly, I think some, 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 sometimes people on the right who want to protest for things like asylum or library books or whatever it may be that they think need to be highlighted to the public, I think sometimes the, the language can come across as a bit extreme. The protests... They don't do themselves any justice. No, I, yeah. I agree. Yeah, I think, I think we have to work much harder on our sort of... I mean, there was a great case which was covered in Grip yesterday. Um, I can't remember the gentleman's name, but he's a professional. I think he's a psychotherapist in the UK. Um, who lost his job because he refused to affirm uh, gender dysphoria to children, I think it was. Um, and he took a case to court and the courts, and they agreed that he was wrongly dismissed and now have said that a professional can indeed turn around and said, I don't accept that a boy can become a girl or vice versa and that other sorts of therapy would be necessary for gender dysphoria. So they now accept that you don't have to believe that a man becomes a woman or a woman becomes a man. And that's the type of thing that probably should have been done in Enoch Burke's case, if indeed he, yeah. he got legal advice. But okay, moving on from that, um, the cost of immigration is going through the roof. Now, of course, the government are trying to do something about it by reducing uh, the cost uh, of Ukrainians uh, from 220 down to 38 quid, which is the standard asylum seeker money, and telling them they have to be out of their accommodation or find a job within 90 days. Now, this is something I had suggested going back ages ago, because the British have been doing this since day one. You only get six months support, and after that, you're just like anybody else, you're on your own. 
But I don't know if this is just, um, this is sort of grandstanding by the government to be seen to be doing something for the 76% in the Red Sea poll who believe we've let too many people in, that look, we'll do something to make them happy. That's not really going to make a difference because if I was a Ukrainian living in Ireland and I'm getting 220 and the government told me, sorry, you're only getting 38 as in for March because it's going to take three months to bring in the legislation, I'll just pretend I'm out of work anyway and then get the standard social welfare, which is 220. So it's not really going to make a difference, is it? Yeah, and what I find fascinating about this story is coming back to our point about the media that we made a little while ago is, do you know the phrase I haven't heard in discussion of it? Is the phrase U-turn. Mm -hmm. I mean, if the government reverses a policy that they introduce in the budget, it's a U-turn, it's political, they recognise they've made a mistake. The government, by by reducing the fees so drastically, and this is not a small reduction, this is like a 70-80% reduction of the payment people are going to be getting, is essentially saying we've gotten this policy wrong. The policy as it currently is that we implemented is wrong and incorrect and has had negative consequences for the country, therefore we're going to correct it. And everyone's acting as if this is just perfectly normal. I mean, if this was any other area of public policy that they were completely reversing themselves on, there would be opposition and media calls to explain why they made the mistake in the first case. Mm -hmm. And I mean, what's, what's very apparent here, Niall, is that a, you know, a catastrophic mistake was made. And, and by the way, not one that was not foreseeable. Because on, on Gripped, and indeed not only on Gripped, other journalists pointed out at the very beginning of this process that we were about to offer Ukrainians far more relative to other European countries than they could get anywhere else. Um, and, and per head of population, I think, and these figures, I don't have them to hand, but we had significantly more Ukrainians come here per head of population than went to, for example, France. Mm -hmm. um, or to Germany or to Belgium. And one of the reasons for that, and one of the things that's interesting, is the amount of Ukrainian migration that came here from other European countries. So people who very rationally, and like Leo Varadkar said in 2008, you don't blame the migrants, you blame the government for this, but people who very rationally um, decided, well, hold on a second, I'm living here in France and I'm getting 150 euro a week or whatever it is, but I can go to Ireland and get 100 euro more and accommodation. I mean, home to those people is neither France nor Ireland, so why wouldn't they go to Ireland? We had a policy that actively attracted people here relative to other European countries. I've heard, I've heard yeah. numerous stories that many Ukrainians who came to Ireland weren't actually, in fact, Ukrainians at all. There were people who uh, claimed they were in the Ukraine or when the war broke out. Um, yeah, uh, the, which is, <laughs> is, is another thing that's crazy. I mean, if you're in Ukraine when the war breaks out and you're not from Ukraine, then you go home to the country where you're actually from. You don't mm -hmm. seek refuge. That's like me being in America on my holidays and the Canadians invade. And I say, oh, well, I'm going to go to Mexico to seek asylum. No. Well, I, I was in that situation. I, I was affected directly by that situation because when the war started, I was actually living in the Travel Lodge Hotel. Divorce, long story. I was living in the Travel Lodge Hotel for three or four days a week. And the Travel Lodge, at the time I was getting a deal, it was 60 quid a night because mm. it was this kind of business deal they were getting. And they turned around to me and said, sorry, we're going to have to increase the price now because the government are paying us more for those rooms because the whole thing had kicked off, you know. So uh, I'm standing at reception one day and I was talking to the manager and I said, uh, what's the story? I said, when are, you know, the Ukrainians coming to Ireland? And they said, oh, they're here. That's, they're over there. And I, I'm, I'm looking and I'm going, they're not Ukrainian. They look like Pakistani gentlemen. And she said, oh, yeah, but they were living and studying in the Ukraine when the war broke out. And I said, yeah, sure they were. So we were completely taken advantage of. And now we have a situation where the war has gone nowhere. It's at a stalemate. It's a proxy war. It's turning certainly into a proxy war. 80% of the country is not effective. We've seen videos yesterday of Kiev, which looks perfectly fine. It's like Grafton Street on a Saturday afternoon. Christmas lights everywhere, people having a good time. And you've got Ukrainians heading home for holidays. So clearly there's an issue here where we've been taken advantage of unnecessarily because it looks like this war is not going to escalate. Yeah, true. But there's another there's another point to it as well that, that I want to make, which is, is I think a lot of people will be annoyed about, which is the way that 
if you had said any, if you had advocated for the policy that the government just announced yesterday, if you would advocated for that policy six months ago, you would have been a far-right anti-immigration extremist. <laughs> you would have been somebody... And we have this pattern in this country of the entire political establishment, by which I mean the media, the large political parties and the NGOs, just turning on a dime overnight. And it's like in George Orwell's book, 1984, when all of a sudden East Asia is no longer at war with Eurasia. It goes the other way. If you think back to COVID-19, when for months and months and months you were an anti-lockdown anti-science hating shill if you thought the lockdown was going on too long. Oh yeah, you were so named by the way, you were named yeah, in and so was I. Yes, yeah, so, yeah. so were you. We were both, we were both anti-lockdown anti-science shills. And now it turns out we were morning, right by the way. Yeah, one morning we wake up and all of a sudden the, the, you know, that's the policy of the state. And there's, there's well, well no not only that, there's been published papers out now which have come out to, obviously yeah. since the, the inquiry in the United Kingdom and we're going to get to that in a few minutes. But the published papers now suggest that of examining all the lockdowns all over the world, Sweden actually fared out the best, which had the least amount of lockdowns. They actually didn't have any at all. They had restrictions or some restrictions. They didn't close schools. Uh, they didn't have lockdowns. They didn't force people to wear face masks. They actually just did some logical stuff like wash your hands and keep your distance. And they turned out to have the lowest excess debt rate, whereas countries with the biggest lockdowns actually had some of the highest. So it turned out, according to the report, the summary of the report basically said lockdowns and masks made little or no difference whatsoever. But we knew that yeah, at the time, and, but and we the, weren't allowed to the, say it. And the same people who made all those bad decisions, the same people who made the bad decisions about the Ukrainian refugee payments that they're now reversing, are the same people who have us in all these other messes. And every time you oppose them and say there might be a problem here, you're a far-right extremist. And then all of a sudden when they adopt basically your policy, they, it's suddenly the moderate centrist policy and you're still a far-right extremist. <laughs> it is a complete and utter nonsense of a way to run a country. Journalists let them away with it when they shouldn't do it. Um, and the opposition, um, by the way, are toothless and ineffective because the opposition tend to be cowed into believing this. So, But the, me but the media are equally toothless. But the media, I mean, I remember yeah. during COVID-19, Every radio station, I was here working radio, and every radio station lost all its advertising because most of our advertising came from the hospitality industry. So we lost all our advertising because everywhere closed. And of course, you were relying then on the money that the BAI was handing out to radio stations, to independent radio stations. And you were also relying on those government advertisings were now in stage three or lockdown six or whatever the hell it was, or, you know, an advertisement for vaccines from the HSC. That's what you were relying on just to survive. So the media were compromised, if you ask me. Yeah, well, that, 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 they, they are largely compromised. And it's also something that we don't talk about half enough, which is the degree to which you know, journalism is a poorly paid profession. Um, all these people obviously don't want to be journalists for the rest of their lives. And the number one career path for a journalist in Ireland these days is to do 5, 10, 15 years reporting in the news and then go and work in public relations, either for an, an NGO or a charity or, or a government a minister or very, or very often a government minister. I mean, the Minister for Justice, for example, this is a matter of public record. Her, her special advisor on over €100,000 a year is a guy called Fia Kelly, who was an excellent journalist for the Irish Times, a political reporter, and now he's on the other side of the fence. So if you, I'm not saying this was his motivation specifically, but I think if you look at career paths like that, there are a lot of journalists who might see that kind of career path and go, well, I don't want to make too many enemies, which entirely conflicts with the with the duty of a journalist, which is to hold politicians to account and expose the things that politicians don't want the public finding out. Um, and I think that's a, 
that's a but, huge problem. But we, we did, we did see that during COVID-19. And I'm going to put, pat myself on the back. I was one of the very few broadcasters on air who actually brought people on, for example, in relation to the Barrington Declaration and other things that we brought different scientists with different views on. And by the way, I got a lot of complaints to the Broadcasting Authority. I got a lot of flack for doing it. Um, you know, and I had to put myself under a lot of pressure of maybe possibly even losing my job. But thankfully, I was supported at the time in the radio station for doing it. But, 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 but a lot of journalists wouldn't do it. Yeah, but the other the other thing, and it, and I'm not saying you did it for this reason, because I did the same thing on Grip.ie, where we were the only sort of print or online outlet that consistently gave time and and space to arguments from an anti-lockdown perspective. And I think I think both you and I probably benefited hugely from that because people respond to hearing both sides of an argument. And, mm -hmm. and they don't respond to... I remember the Claire Byrne show, which became the Scareburn <laughs> show on RTE for the entirety of lockdown, <laughs> where all she had on were people telling us how... I watched it. I loved it. It was like comedy. It was comedy yeah. gold. You know, two respected scientists sitting at sewing machines, knitting face masks. You know, two other presenters in bubbles rolling around... The, on the set. Then we had that girl. Well, do you remember the girl with the contraption of her, the hairdresser? And she had this big glass contraption around somebody's head trying to blow dry their hair inside it. Uh, the yeah, most ridiculous yeah. stuff you've ever seen. Claire was wonderful, I have to say, during the lockdown. Uh, in her it was, but, but I, I also think we'll look back on lockdown in 15 or 20 years' time as a, as a, as a turning point in terms of the trustworthiness of the Irish media and the faith people had in Well, I mean, on a serious was, note, those lockdowns, you know, I mean, there was a great uh, published study out, I think, Pittsburgh in the United Kingdom or in the USA, and they said that the lockdowns would cause 15 million deaths. And by that, they meant, you know, that people's lives would be short and somebody didn't get that hip operation they were meant to get, their quality of life went down, they died. Somebody went on the alcohol, somebody else ate too much. So in other words, it, it does affect people's lives. Somebody didn't get a diagnosis of cancer for it at the time because they couldn't get a doctor. So all those things had a knock-on effect on people's lives and lifestyle, which in turn is going to cost a lot of lives. And we are seeing quite a high number of excess deaths at the moment. But moving on from that, McGregor, Connor. What a wonderful man. <laughs> or is he? I mean, do you think really people would vote for him as president? And do you actually think he'd run for presidency? Because let's be clear, Connor has a few skeletons in the closet there, you know? Hmm. Um, I don't think he would win. Um, and I, I don't think he would win for two reasons. Number one, I, I, I think, that, I mean, first of all, as Peter Casey showed, winning isn't everything in a presidential election. So uh, just to, to say that, because there's more to this thought. But I, I don't think he would win because, I mean, there's a couple of reasons. Firstly, he will be the victim of one of the great scourges of Irish society, which is classism. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to be frank, he has the wrong accent to be elected president in this country. Uh, that is that is an unpleasant thing, perhaps, to say, and I'm not saying that's the right. In fact, it's, it's disgusting that it's the case. But I think there's there's a huge degree of classism in our society, particularly when it comes to working class people from Dublin um, and from Limerick and from other cities as well. Secondly, I think that he doesn't really have the, I think in a campaign, he would be, he would be the punching bag for those people in the media who like to think themselves think of themselves as the guardians of democracy. So he says he wants to use the presidency to make a case for the Irish people. And there are certain people in RTE who would absolutely love during a debate asking him what Article 16 of the Constitution says and all this kind of nonsense. And, and he won't try to make him a punching bag. Yeah. And number three, number three, of course, there is the issue that if Conor McGregor has any skeletons in the closet, um, every well, no, I, I'm talking about the ones that we would be aware of, that would be public knowledge, yeah. for example, when he hit the yeah. guy in the bar, which, you know, there were cases taken to court, obviously, in relation to those. Yeah, of course. Um, and those and those will be that that fellow hit the bar will be interviewed. You know there'll be a full court press to destroy him. So when he put, I don't when he put a, a chair through the window of a bus yeah. in New York and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. The, the, the other thing is, of course, to win a presidential election, you need to get fifty percent of the vote. It's a very very high bar, 
Um, and, you know, it's, it's not the same for somebody like Nigel Farage in the UK, for example, who can make a huge impact with 20% of the vote. Um, so I think he's probably barking up the wrong tree. And if he wants a career in politics, he should probably look at mm. trying to recruit people to run under his banner for the Oireachtas. I mean, I'm a bit um, torn when it comes to Connor, to be honest with you. You know, there, there was a time that I wouldn't have had a huge amount of time for him. But more recently, I've been reading some of his tweets. And with the exception of one or two things that he says, I probably agree with a lot of what he says. And I, and I, what I do respect is that he has so much of a following that he has a huge influence on people. So he does have a good platform yeah. to have an influence on people. Now, I think Connor is maybe slightly delusional in the fact that he thinks he might have a level of power being the president of Ireland. It's not like Donald Trump. He won't have any power whatsoever. But certainly, I think he could make an impact. Yeah, but there's another thing here, Niall, too, which worries me about this stuff, which is 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 that on the sort of and I'm I'm using the word right advice, you know, as a as a common thing rather than I'm not saying everyone who's on this side is right wing in the traditional sense, but sort of on the the right of Irish politics where people might support something like that. I think there's sort of too much hunting for a saviour and not enough thinking about what we do if we ever if, if we ever get into power. I think the problem with people like Conor McGregor is that they are amateurs. And that's and I'm not saying mm-hmm. I'm professional or you're a professional. I'm not, not a professional politician at all. But I think you go into the... Let's imagine, for the sake of argument, he does run 60 candidates in the next election and they all get elected and there's this huge populist landslide. What does Conor McGregor do on day one? When you go into into the all, you say, oh, well, I'm going to defund all the NGOs. Well, how are you going to do that? What mm-hmm. mechanism are you going to use? How are you going to deal with the legal challenges? There's not enough thinking about the actual policies that we could implement in this country to make it better. And there's too much looking for easy solutions. Like I, I sometimes see people online saying things about immigration, like, oh, just deport all the foreigners. Well, no, I'm sorry, yeah. a, a Conor McGregor party wins power tomorrow. Even if you think that's a desirable outcome, which I don't think most people do, but even if you think that's a desirable outcome, you're not going to be able to do it. You're going to run into court challenges upon court challenges and European court challenges. What policy are you going to enact? What what buttons are you going to press? We don't have, we have, a thanks to you and, and me and some others now, we have voices in the media now on the Irish right, but we don't really have people thinking enough about policy. Like, what does it, what does victory look like? What's your actual plan? Because I'll tell you And now, that's something that worries me too. When, when we talk about the right wing, right, and, you know, and this kind of swings slightly to the right again, we're seeing it in countries around the world, like Argentina, for example, or Italy and places like that. And we're seeing this kind of swing to the right. You know, some of the stuff that they come out with even, the right wing, which I'm supposed to be part of, you know, concerns me a little bit. You know, because I don't think I'd like an extreme right wing party in power because I wouldn't agree with everything they do either. I want somewhere slightly in the middle, but maybe leaning slightly to be conservative. So it does concern me when you see, you know, extreme right wing parties getting into power because there is a lot of, there is genuinely a lot of hatred amongst some of those individuals. For example, I don't want somebody getting into power in Ireland who's going to say deport all the immigrants because that's not what we need. We need immigrants. We need diversity. We do need the multinational companies, of course, have lots of people working here. We need people in hospitality. Could you imagine if we, uh, you know, suddenly deported everybody tomorrow? The hotels, the bars, everywhere, the restaurants, they close down. So we do need people who will come into Ireland and work. But that's what's important, to work in Ireland. We don't need people coming here languishing on social welfare, which, of course, was the statement that Ryan Casey made after, you know, the trial of Ashling Murphy, which, again, was censored by the media, which brings me to my next question. Media censorship. Now, we saw that statement, which was shortened and edited by a lot of the media, not all of the media. Of course, script media didn't censor it or, or shorten it in any sh- shape or form. In fact, more than that, they, they obviously looked into it and examined it in great detail. But you yourself were subjected to that when you appeared on uh, Virgin Media. I was going to say TV3 because it's the worst rebranding in history. But I was on Virgin Media when you, as a journalist and the editor of a media organisation, were told that you shouldn't have named the nationality 
of the gentleman responsible. Well, I sorry, I shouldn't use the word gentleman because he's not a gentleman. He's a comeback of the man responsible for you know the stabbing attack in Parnell Street. I mean, you were told you shouldn't have named his nationality. You defended yourself, of course. I did. Because, I mean, I, I think the thinking behind it is interesting, which is, is it goes to the mindset, and I, I'm really kicking myself for not asking Kira Doherty that night. If she thinks that that story should have been covered up, um, or maybe covered up as unfair to her, but that, that that information should have been suppressed for a period of time until the public were ready to hear it. What other stories does she suppress for a period of time until she thinks the public are ready to hear it? Are you a journalist whose job it is to report the news, or are you a journalist whose job it is to suppress the news? And whose agenda are you serving by suppressing the news? I had, um, actually, following on from that, I had a conversation with Colin Keenan in the Irish Times, who, who did an interview with me uh, that was published last week, and we were we were discussing this in that context, and he said, oh, well, I think you have a duty to take into account public tensions and how the public might react to a piece of news. No, you don't, Colin. I'm sorry, that's a politician's problem. Mm -hmm. If a fact is a fact and it's of public interest, and I think the nationality of somebody who's just stabbed three children, allegedly, um, is is clearly a matter of genuine public interest in the most legitimate sense of that phrase, as in the public are interested in it, and is also relevant to policy. Bear in mind, um, obviously, a very small minority of Algerians would ever commit crimes, just like a minority of Irish people would. But it is also true that right across Europe, if you look at Islamic terror incidents, Algerians are the number one nationality that are involved mm -hmm. um, in Islamic terrorist attacks right across the continent of Europe. In that sense, I think his, his nationality is both a matter of public interest in the sense that the public are interested in it, and also because it is potentially relevant to what was at that point a possible motive for committing the crime. And I think when you can establish a fact and it is relevant. Uh, just by the way, as I was the first journalist in the country, first in the country, to report that Cao uh, Benicio, one of the absolute heroes of that day, who, in my view, along with the two other gentlemen um, mm. involved, should get a medal or the Freedom of Dublin City for their actions. But I was the first journalist in the country to report his nationality as being a Brazilian person. That, that was, but that was okay to report his nationality. Yeah. That was, that was that, fine. And, that, and, and that, that's it. No journalist has a problem with that. And they have no problem with that, I suspect, because of their belief that knowing that a hero was uh, of Brazilian extraction might make somebody feel warmer about immigration, but knowing that an attempted murderer was a foreign extraction might make somebody feel negative. But, but so isn't this the same problem we have with the figures? Yeah. When we talked about the figures of 2022 for murders, for example, the suggestion was that we don't note or we don't record the ethnicity or the nationality of the murderer of the perpetrator, mm. uh, whereas other countries do. We don't record those figures. And, you know, we, we were speaking there recently uh, to Dr... Oh, his name's gone out of my head. Anyway, uh, we were speaking to him recently and he talked about the fact that six of those murders were carried out by somebody who was, non, uh, was not born in Ireland. I mean, which is a very important fact. Now, you can make what you want of that fact and statistically analyse the fact and wonder why that's the case, but it is an important fact. These things are relevant, aren't they? They are relevant um, and they, 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 they inform. I mean, Sharon Kyogen, the independent senator from County Meath, made a speech in the Shannon last week in which she highlighted some factual statistics from around Europe about the impacts, the, the linking of immigration and crime. Not a topic most people want to talk about at the dinner table. It obviously makes some people uncomfortable. I understand why. Um, but what she said was entirely factual. We don't collect those statistics, in part, I think, because there's a feeling that if we collected those statistics, they might show something that, in the words of... Something Casey uncomfortable. About Ryan, yeah, about Ryan Casey, was not helpful. Um, and I think... But she, but she accused Ryan, hate, she, Ryan Casey of incitement to hatred. But, by the way, it was, sorry, it was Dr. Owen Linehan uh, was the gentleman I was interviewing in, in relation to yes. this. 
Yeah, Figures. A, a great man. I know. I know him. And but, but yeah. Yeah, she, Kitty Holland actually accused Brian Casey of crime. Incitement mm. to hatred is a is a crime. So she, what she's saying there is that by his words in his victim impact statement, he was causing people in the public to hate an undefined group of people. Who did she mean? Did she mean Slovakians? Does she is she honestly saying? that the public in this country would hate Slovakians because one Slovakian committed a terrible crime. I mean, mm. is, is that her level of analysis? This is supposed to be one of the most senior, most award-winning journalists in the country. Somebody I mean, Ryan Casey was, was literally asking a question. He wasn't making a statement. He was asking a yeah. question that he actually um, wanted an answer for. And I know Grip to ask Michal Martin the same question based on the question Ryan Casey had, and he dodged that uh, one his, very well. His answer, his answer, no, I want to make this point. His answer was almost worse. He did yeah. something that was that was really insidious. I don't know if you saw his answers. That I question. did, yeah. I Ben asked him the question. Yeah, mm -hmm. he said, he said, and I'm paraphrasing now, but he said something that I understand what a stressful time and how upsetting it was for Ryan Casey. And you know, he basically said, Asher, he wasn't himself. Mm. That was that was the that was the gist of what he said, as if as if no person and as if he was delusional in some way. Yes, could could possibly think think it. So so I mean, the, these attitudes are are rife and they are rampant and they are held disproportionately by people with a huge amount of power in Irish society, which is why they need to be challenged. So when you know, I, I we obviously grip media made a mistake. I was going to, I was coming to that. You, you admit yeah. well, you you accept. And by the way, I I know I defended you at the, at the time, and I defended Grip Media because I don't believe any media outlet is perfect or one hundred percent of the time, uh, because as media outlets have made mistakes all the time. But do you, you accept you got it wrong on that particular occasion. You know when you um, ran the information in relation to the Algerian man who had been accused or has been accused of yeah. that particular crime. Yeah, what I would say about that is is that I mean we. We sourced the information in a way that I am confident I would stand over. We sourced it from people from whom we have sourced really good stories in the past um, and never had an issue with their information. We we did all that. We, we waited for a couple of days and did every check we could before we published it. And you know what? It turned out in the end, despite all that, it was wrong because the individual who we thought or who we, we linked to the incident had an almost identical immigration history, age, everything to the to the person who the guardie say is the, the real perpetrator. It was it was a terrible mistake that I really you I you unfortunately sometimes you're gonna make mistakes and when you can't do that, all you can do is put your hand up and say, Look, we made a mess. We're really sorry. We'll do everything in our power to fix it. And I'm, I'm confident that we've done that. Yeah. But that and, said, unfortunately one, for one, you guys, the timing was wrong because of the night before you were only on the air talking about the fact of, you know, the freedom of the media and you should be able to name and do whatever yeah, it, it is. It, and then, that, then the following day that story happens, which wasn't good timing. And that was just it was unfortunate. Few, it was a few nights before that. But the other um, thing is like, um, the, the, Lots of media outlets make mistakes. The Irish Times published an article by a computer and thought it was a real person. Um, you know, the, the various media outlets identified teachers and Carlos. Well, sure, RT were only apologising during the week that RT News ran an article saying the army had been brought in, which wasn't true yeah. at all. Uh, and, was, and they, they also, yeah. And so, so, but very few people's mistakes end up as the number three item on the six one news two nights in a row, <laughs> which, which mine did. And I think uh, this good advertising for great media, by the way. Can I just point uh, out? Well, yeah, but the, you know, there was a there was a degree of uh, there was a degree of relish taking taking Absolutely. in the fact that we had we had made a mistake. And what I was going to say is, I wear that relish as a badge of honor, because if 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 people feel that eager to run us down and threaten us and say, you know, you're terrible, you should be shut up or you the, you should be kicked out of the press council or you shouldn't be allowed to do anything, that shows me we're having an impact. 
and it shows me that people are are listening, not, not not agreeing with everything we say. And I'm proud of the fact. I, nothing makes me happier when a reader writes in and says, "I agree with you 90% of the time, but you're really wrong on this." Because I think if if you agree with somebody 100% of the time, you should you should get your head checked. Yeah. Um, but if you agree with them 70% of the time, they're probably worth supporting. Um, but you know, the fact that people are engaging with our content and are finding something in it that they're not finding elsewhere, and the fact that people feel threatened by that, both in government and the rest of the media, is to me a huge marker of the success and the impact that that this wonderful team that I'm privileged to lead um, has. I mean, I think Ben Scallon, um, he's amazing. We've had on this he's show great. a number of times. Wonderful. He's he's an unbelievable talent, and he is he's he's shown in it. I mean, Ben didn't go to journalism school. He, he had no formal training as a journalism a journalist. He's just a guy who said, "Who said, you know what?" Um, I, I said, "Look, we, we we need somebody to go and ask questions of politicians." He put his hand up and said, "I'll do it." And he's asked better questions after no training than a lot of his very esteemed, very highly paid, very glamorous, very well known colleagues have managed in years. And he's been and, and he doesn't take no for an and he doesn't take no for an answer, which he's quite famous for at this stage. And, no, some uh, people some people do get some people do get frustrated sometimes with the answers he gets. And I, I have to say. Uh, in his defense that he can't he can't like force a politician down no of course not if, if politicians are good at avoiding it but I, what I love with Ben is when you see the videos when Ben walks into a room and he puts a microphone up to a politician you can almost tell what they're thinking they're kind of looking and going oh no he's here you, you just know by looking at their face when they kind of go yes Ben because they just know it's going to be a difficult question, which because they're not used to difficult questions. They're not used to being challenged, which is wonderful to see Ben Scallon doing that. And uh, you can see all Ben's videos, by the way. They're all on Grip Media. Just finally, two more things before we finish up. Um, COVID public inquiry is a big thing in the UK at the moment, of course, the, pub or the public inquiry. Uh, we're seeing Boris Johnson and now Richie Sunak as well has apologised to the British people for not acting early enough. He's also apologised for losing all the WhatsApp messages and so did Boris. saying, I don't know. I lost them on my bloody phone. I don't know how they went. Do you think we need a public inquiry? Uh, Philip Nolan, uh, who was a member of Neffet at the time, of course, he doesn't want one. Um, he doesn't believe it's necessary. But do you believe we need a public inquiry and people to be held accountable? I know Gript spoke to Pascal uh, Donoghue, or Pascal Donoghue, about this, and he said he would accept full responsibility for any decisions he made. But he said he made them at the time based on the data they had. Ivor Cummins, we spoke yeah. to yesterday, completely disagrees and said they should have known better because the data they had after six months clearly showed that there was no point in focusing on the whole population and we should have been just focused on the elderly. Yeah, so there's two things here, I'd say. I mean, I, I think I, I think both Pascal Donoghue and Ivor Cummins have points. Um, first of all, I think that if somebody, if somebody makes a wrong decision but makes a wrong decision in good faith with the data that's in front of them and with the best of intentions for making that wrong decision. And, and there were lots of experts saying saying to make that wrong decision. I don't think they should be held accountable in the sense of being being blamed for it. I think if you're acting in the best interest, and, and, and we all, human beings make mistakes and they make wrong calls. However, what I really think we need a public inquiry to hear and find out is, were they getting all the information? Because my impression um, watch, watching watching Neffet and watching the government during COVID and watching the Irish media during COVID was that all dissenting voices were being shut out of the room. This was definitely true in the media. You had doctors both internationally and domestically who were saying this isn't the, the correct um, uh, policy. There was that doctor, and I'm so sorry I've forgotten his name, but he was a senior uh, doctor down in, I think, the Eastern uh, sorry, the Western Health Board down in Galway, who was who who was raising serious concerns about lockdowns and actually lost his job at the HSE for doing so. That's so right. So yeah. if if you are 
crushing dissent internally, then you are then you're having a recipe for bad decisions. And that's what I think we really need a COVID inquiry to find out. Because if somebody has all the information in front of them and says, I've got option A, B, C, D, and E, and I'm going to pick option B, mm. and that turns out to have been wrong, then we can question your judgment, but at least you made a decision in good faith. Well, but in relation to that, Dr. Martin Feely is his name, by the way. He had correct. oodles of credibility. The man was the senior doctor in the Midlands Hospital and, you know, and, and a man of years, a mature man who was well used to dealing with viruses and diseases of all sorts. And it wasn't a case, I mean, why you would cancel somebody for just having a viewpoint is beyond me, particularly when they're people who are credible, who have credible knowledge, who is a qualified doctor. And okay, he might have been wrong, he might have been right, but not even listening to him and deciding you're going to lose your job because of it or you need to resign is ridiculous. But the, the answer to your question, why do it, is, is, is um, I think it was Louis XIV who said, pour encourager les autres. It was, mm. to, it, was to, it was to introduce a chilling effect to make sure that no other senior doctors who valued their job and had doubts of a COVID policy would, would come down the same road. But I, um, I can tell you, that, I interviewed many doctors at the time, infectious disease from Matter Hospital, from uh, Beaumont Hospital. During COVID, of course, there was a grapple to get experts constantly on the air all the time. And my producers will verify that they would have said before they come on the air, listen, I don't believe in all of this, but look, I can't say that on the air because my job would be on the line. And they yeah. actually admitted to that on numerous occasions. Many of them said that to us, that they wouldn't actually say what they really felt, but they'd just toe the line and talk politics, you know, because they couldn't. Now, th this is a fundamental issue with Irish culture, and that's why we need the inquiry, and it's also why we won't get the inquiry. This is the paradox. Because this, if you look at it, in, in my adult life, uh, which ranges from about 2002 on, the, the, the length of my adult life, um, we, every disaster we've had in this country has had the same proximate cause, which was exactly what you're talking about. People afraid to speak out. The 2008 economic crash, when people who dissented and said our economic policy needs to change were told by the Taoiseach of the country that they should consider taking their own lives because they were so depressed. Um, to lockdown, where we have all these people, and by the way, I spoke to them as well, who are afraid to speak out. To the current immigration policy, where I can tell you for a fact that there are Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil backbenchers who have stronger views on immigration policy than some of the people who phone into your show on a Wednesday and call for everyone to be deported. And they're <laughs> afraid to speak out because they lose their job. This is a country in which people are constantly terrified to run the red flag up the pole and say, actually, there's a problem with the consensus and we need to do something about it. And consequently, we have these policy disasters. Uh, and, and I mean, and one of the reasons we're not having an inquiry, I suspect, aren't going to have an inquiry, is because it's a fact that nobody wants to confront. Because that's what will come out. It won't be that, uh, you know, uh, some government minister did something scandalous. It will be the realisation and the expose of the fact that there were a lot of people raising alternative perspectives who weren't listened to. And uh, just finally, I suppose, speaking of not listening to people, uh, the hate speech laws, of course, one of the reactions, our usual reactionary government after the riots uh, in Dublin City when people set fire to everything. Uh, and by the way, we all condemn that behaviour. But one, the reaction to it by the government, of course, is let's bring in cameras, uh, you know, facial recognition cameras, and let's speed up those laws, you know, on hate speech. The laws which have been condemned by Elon Musk, being condemned by most people around the world, we're actually a laughing stock of the world now at this stage because these particular laws seem to be the most Orwellian uh, speech laws uh, that any country has ever brought in. Now, it seems the Minister for Justice is determined to get them in before Christmas, but I don't think that's going to happen, is it? Well, I think the first thing to remember is that she's the second minister to have brought them forward. Charlie Flanagan, who is broadly a sensible fellow, um, also introduced them, which tells me actually that they're not really government policy. It tells me that this is something the civil service 
is really keen on getting through. When you have a policy like this that survives a couple of ministers and was first introduced in 2018, 2019, then a public consultation, then one minister, then an election, then another, that tells me that the permanent government are really quite keen on these laws, uh, which tells me also that they're coming primarily from the European Union and other international institutions. Um, Helen McEntee, I think, is somebody, I think her biggest failing as a politician from watching her is that she is somebody who has never in her life questioned her officials who has never in her life stood up to the civil servants and said, actually, um, this isn't this isn't what I want to do as minister. I think we've so many people in, in Irish politics who think their job as minister is to do what the civil servants tell them, and very few who realise it is their job to tell the civil, civil servants what to do. So I think that's the first thing about it. Secondly, I think, I'm actually an optimist on the hate speech bill. I don't think the hate speech bill, at least in its current form, will ever end up on the statute book, because I think there is just, at this point, there is too much public opposition to it. There is too much toxicity um, attached to it. And frankly, it's not as if, if it was just you and me shouting about it, Niall, I think it would probably pass and pass fairly easily. But when you've got people like former Minister for Justice Michael McDowell shredding this thing on the floor of the Shannon, mm -hmm. Um, th th there are serious legal issues with it. There are serious constitutional issues with it. And there is the increasing international reputational blowback from it. And then there's the other thing, which is sometimes unpopular policies pass if there's a hugely powerful body of public opinion behind them, even if that's in the minority. Mm -hmm. um, so, the, you know, the, so examples like that are, for example, getting these referendums on statute books on March 8th. No one really wants them, but there's a small and powerful lobby group that's enough to shift opinion. I think on this one, the government is faced, is faced with the fact that there isn't really, I mean, even the Irish Council for Civil Liberties has issues with this law. There isn't really an NGO out there who you could say is really pushing the hate speech law specifically. So there's no massive weight behind it. I know, I've, I've, talking to I've talking to some of our, I mean, you know, we have a kind of bank of we call lefties <laughs> to balance out the show every now and again. And even they don't agree with it. Most of them actually think it's yeah. ridiculous. So it, yeah, it's, it's just, it's, it, it, this is not a right wing, left wing thing. This is just people who don't want their speech compelled. It's a civil liberties thing. And I mean, mm. it's, it's, it's an issue of the real problem is, I mean, I think Helen McEntee probably stuck a stake through the heart of her own hate mm. speech bill when she gave that definition of far right last week, because she said it doesn't really have a definition. And hate doesn't have a definition. And there are various other things in the bill that don't have definitions. Well, if things don't have a definition, then they can mean anything you want them to mean. And so this conversation could, in some respects, be considered hateful by the right person. Um, there's, you know, there, there's something that anybody says in their private life, if it's considered hateful, could be reported. And it's it, then, you know, if, if there are no definitions in a bill, everybody is at risk from that bill in the wrong hands. I mm. mean, the, the if you want to, I always say the best thing about any law, including laws you support, if you're proposing to give, and this is why I'm a conservative, by the way, fundamentally, aside from all this other stuff, if, if you are proposing ever to give the government an extra power to do anything, imagine that power in the hands of your worst enemy directed at you. And oftentimes when you think of that, you'll think actually maybe they shouldn't have that power after all. I'm assuming, um, by the way, in those, in those referendums, you're going to be voting no. Actually, there was a video, just I let you watch this just very quickly before you go, um, of Neil Richards. It's, it's a constitutional change that is long, long overdue. And it is a recognition that care comes from many different people and it comes in many different forms. And yes, that care and taking on that care is extremely onerous for the person who provides that care or that family unit. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a biological family member. And this is what I want to get to the key point of changing what the definition of family is. This is moving to not just modern time vernacular, but it has serious consequences, particularly when we think of immigration law and proving that someone is family member or family reunification. This will allow that to be accommodated as well. So we're keeping up to space with other uh, communities. Because you're talking about durable relationships. Absolutely, as yeah. Is this 
durable relationships. He believes this will be good for immigration, for family reunification. I'm assuming you'll be voting no to redefine the family, John. I'll be voting no on both. I mean, just to deal with both of them very briefly. First of all, the the, the guff about carers is about the most typically Irish thing I can imagine. I mean, you know, so we're going to recognise them by putting them in the constitution because that's easier than recognising them by actually doing anything for them. Mm-hmm. We put in a little line in the constitution saying we'll endeavour to ensure that they're supported. Well, no, just just like do something that actually helps carers rather than this nonsense. But on the on the on the defining the family as other other significant relationships. Durable relationships, durable relationships yeah. Relationships, whatever yeah. it is. I mean, there's so many implications there. First of all, the only people in this country who get to define what the Constitution means are the courts. So, I mean, is a durable relationship, is a family, can a family, is a family based on two people or can it be based on three people? Will you have throuples and quads and all sorts of other relationships? Um, it, then there's I, the have a, I have a durable relationship with the dog. I mean, does that count? Uh, I, I, as I, do know. I. And she's, she's jumping around my feet wondering why she hasn't been taken on her walk yet. So, <laughs> but, 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 you know, the, the point is, you're basically putting the definition of family into the hands of, if you can imagine, the most radical lawyer that manages to get appointed onto a court somewhere, which I think is a really bad idea. And then I think Neil Richmond will come to regret his statement linking this referendum to making it easier to bring more people into the country in the current. Well, that's what he's. That's essentially what he's doing there now, which is probably yeah, not yeah, a very yeah. good thing. Anyway, we'll come to re- regret that. I think it might harm his promotion prospects. <laughs> Neil is one of the Neil is one of the few people in, the, in 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 government who you'd say is a genuine thinker. But that was a bad moment. Do you ever notice Neil in every picture of Michal Martin? Neil is always in the background somewhere like this. I don't know what that's all about. Anyway, listen. Thank you very much indeed, John and Gork, Grip Media. By the way, all those stories that we talked about today, most of them certainly uh, will be our in Grip Media or have been certainly in the last few weeks. Uh, you can check them out. Don't forget the usual uh, way. Go to the Twitter account, Facebook account, or indeed just go to gripmedia.ie. Um, for alternative news, the news you won't read anywhere else. Listen, thank you very much indeed, John. Appreciate talking to you today, and I'm sure we'll catch you again. Thanks, Niall. Thanks for having me on. The multi-award winning Niall Boylan Podcast. Listen live on Facebook, YouTube, and all the usual live stream services. To get in touch, just WhatsApp or text 085-100-2255. The Niall Boylan Podcast. They told me to shut up. Available for download from all your usual platforms.